Should students who suffer from educational malpractice be entitled to monetary damages? Can conservatives win on the issue of school discipline? And is school reform dead? And if so, who killed it? All today on The Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome, friends, back to another episode of The Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and the stories that aren't being covered. We look to shed some light on the dark forces affecting our public schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart. I'm also the CEO of Brightbeam, a nonprofit network of education activists fighting for educational opportunity and justice for every kid. And with me, as usual, every week, Ravi Gupta, a former Obama staffer and a former superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South. Listen, friends, we've been telling you every week that we want to hear from you in voicemail or through email. Our voicemail phone number is 321-213-9171. Our email is citizenstewartshow at lostdebate.com. You can uh, send us your thoughts about show ideas. You can give us uh, reflections or reviews about our show or just sound off on anything you want to sound off on us uh, about. And we'll get back to you. We'll include you in the show. We're, we're having a hard time keeping up. This week, we're not going to uh, feature as much as we normally do from our, our email or our voicemail bag. But next week, we're going to be including some more things into the show, incorporating into the show things that you have sent to us. So please do. Uh, Robbie, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. Uh, I figured that since I have the Ari Fleischer or Kaylee McEnany of Teach for America here with me, uh, which is you, um, you know, the press secretary, uh, that it would be a good time to update our audience. We did this segment on Teach for America. It's a very popular episode. And now we have an article in Chalkbeat from Julian Shen Barrow, which talks about, you know, basically the after effects of what we had you know, basically described and or predicted, which is the TFA was in trouble. They just announced that they'll be reducing their staff by roughly 400 positions in a video that was shared with staff in mid-December. And uh, the layoffs are also part of larger trends. Uh, TFA no longer places recruits, in, according to this article, in 13 of 51 communities that it serves. Chris, informal Teach for America press secretary, what say you about all this? <laughs> well, it's a sad day because I mean, you know, if you've been around long enough, you know that T TFA has been a critical human capital pipeline for all of ed reform, not just for necessarily putting teachers in schools, but uh, making sure that charter schools have the teachers that they need, because it's not like charter schools pop up in a, in a uh, city and then all of a sudden they have all the educators that they need. There was no defined kind of human capital plan for charters. So I charters are near and dear to my heart. So the idea that their human capital pipeline pipeline might dry up for them is a problem to me. And then also, they were always embattled bringing teachers to regular school districts. But as a school a former school board member, I enjoyed the fact that we had some new avenues for new kind of very bright people to get in our classrooms through a very arcane state system of licensure, right? Like we just, it was such a, a problem. So what I'm giving you are the bright spots of the past of why I have been a supporter for so long. And the last thing I will say, you throw rock in any direction and you hit somebody who's doing something really important in education. And I can guarantee you there is a very good chance that that person went through TFA at some point. So it's not just about teachers and classrooms. It's also just about leadership. It's a very, it has been a very good human capital pipeline for all of education 
reform. So this is sad. I, I, I show no, I have no glee in hearing that they're going to have to uh, cut down. But then again, maybe we're in the season of layoffs period anyways. Everybody's laying off. Google let go 12,000 people yesterday. So We covered that on Lost Debate last week on, in the podcasting industry. So watch out, Chris. It's coming for all of us. But I would, I would revise your statement about people doing great work. I would say there are a lot of our people out there who are in traditional districts who are doing awesome stuff out there, didn't do Teach for America. I would also say that you could also throw a rock in you know, people doing some of the, the stupidest work. Also, a lot of them are Teach for America. <laughs> Crassers <laughs> will get to, I think, when we talk about Hess's piece and what's happened to the so-called education reform movement, which is a story we'll cover later. There is some math in here, Chris, that I want you to explain to me. Mm. Uh, so they cut 400 people. Uh, mm -hmm. And now, according to this article, they're at an agile team of about 1,000 staff by summer. Agile team of 1,000. You may say, well, 1,000. What is this 1,000 staff uh, servicing? According to this article, they add 2,000 new corps members per year. So depending on how you view it, that's either one staff member for every two core members or one for every four, if you count the second year. And really it's the first year where, where a lot of the support happens. That's when Institute happens and all this kind of stuff where they get that deep training one for every two or one for every four. That is bureaucracy. I'm sorry. Even with the 400 cuts, that's an awful lot of staff. Now they may say they support alumni and all this other kind of stuff, man, if I was a donor to that, I'd have some questions and actually it seems like donors may have some questions because in the last fiscal year, they reported more than $274 million in operating expenses, but only about $197 million in revenue. They have an endowment, which has obviously been dropping in value as most endowments have because of the stock market. They're probably drawing from their endowment while the endowment is also depleting in value, If I, unless I, there's some other source of funding that isn't called revenue that this article is missing. I don't know. This seems trouble to me. I mean, it doesn't sound like fun. I mean, if that's what you're saying, like, <laughs> oh my God, like if I wanted to take over an organization and somebody said, this is your challenge. But first of all, I mean, <laughs> you're starting out not from bad. You're starting out with a lot of money. I mean, there, there's organizations in this world that would love to have TFA's problems. I'll just put it that way. Uh, in terms of like, uh, it's a lot of money still invested in that organization and, and in what they're doing. I don't know what all those employees do, but I do know that they do more than placing teachers in classrooms. Uh, and they have for a long time. Uh, they have a very large and growing tutoring program. And I know that they've been monetizing different parts of the work that they did well that they just hadn't monetized before. Like, you know, you can't be an organization like that that exists for all these years and not have become good at some things that are sellable, right? So I do know that they have more business lines than just placing teachers, recruiting, training, and placing teachers in classrooms. And it's been that way with them for a long time. I can't speak to their staffing model, like, you know, why they have so many people doing so many things. But I do know that like a lot of organizations, like cutting down on people and headcount might be a pathway towards being leaner and smarter about yeah. how, you, how you engage in the world. And listen... The time has come. Yeah, I'm really enjoying watching you Baghdad Bob this whole story. <laughs> uh, it's like really, I obviously don't enjoy anybody being laid off in education. I, I feel, feel for like those you people. do. I do not. I feel like you, I feel like I there's not. some glee in I your absolutely voice do not. about this. Yes, this it's more story. about the way you are situated because you are often 
my friend, yeah. very critical of a lot of people. Yeah. So sometimes when, when you feel like it's, it's one of my favorite things about you is how loyal you are. And I think I've, you have loyalty to this organization. So I really enjoy seeing <laughs> you put, put it, you know, put it, go to the mattresses or whatever they say for, for teach for America. I'm skeptical as I, as I've said many times, I was a big partner of theirs. I have a lot of, I, I love a lot of the people who come out of that program. I also think there are a lot of people who come out of that program who are completely useless and destructive uh, at worst for our educational system. And for my listening audience, I'm just going to say there's no human being that's useless. I'm just going to say there are human beings that do really dumb things. I'll, I'll introduce you if you really, really dumb things. Uh, <laughs> you're like, you will show me, you will change my mind on that. Let me say this. Yeah. I love TFA. Uh, I think the business model was a good one for a long period of time. And the service that they they provided, I saw it firsthand. I know that charter schools that couldn't have existed without them. I know charter school leaders that couldn't have existed without them. I know school districts that were uh, really in tough spots with traditional teacher pipelines that were struggling to get good people to come into certain parts of school districts that other people wouldn't come to. Right. I, I can show you parts of school districts that couldn't keep a teacher longer than a year or a year and a half. Even as people were criticizing TFA for being a two year program. Oh, my God. We couldn't get our teachers union in Minneapolis to agree to a minimum of two years for teachers before they bid out of our lowest performing schools, meaning we would get new teachers in. And the very first year they would use their first year of seniority to bid out into another school, which caused all kinds of churn. So a two year agreement was a step up in some of our worst performing schools. Um, so these are the things I remember and I think about when I think of the organization. I also think of, you know, the good number of people who are doing great things in the world, that that's where they came from, who happen to be friends of mine. So anyways, enough about that story. TFA is the Google of the moment right now. The juggernaut, big, awesome organization that was never going to have a moment of failure. And now they're laying off. 12,000 people in one organization, 1,000 people there, blah, blah, blah. TFA has got their 400 to contribute. But it also shows you how big they are. I mean, what other, besides the NEA and the, the AFT, what other organizations could lay off 400 people and still be an organization in education, right? Right. No, it's for real. All bureaucracies, if you ask me. <laughs> but okay, let's, uh, let's talk about what makes us mad, Chris. And we have an update and then we have a new story. We promised, I think it was last week even, uh, based on one of our listener messages, that we would revisit like how screwed up our special education system is. We did a ProPublica, we did a, a segment on this ProPublica article that talked about both New York and Washington and how these states were funneling money to private providers and, and often wasting it, or at least not being great stewards of taxpayer dollars. The Washington story was particularly egregious because in that case, like in the New York case, it was spending too much money on what seemed like really fancy institutions that weren't like very efficient, whereas the Washington one was spending tons of public dollars on institutions that seem total crap holes that were really bad for kids. Thankfully, I know this is our MAD segment, but thankfully this is the update. It's now reported that Washington education officials have launched an investigation into the state's network of privately run schools for students with disabilities. Chris, so, you know, a little late, but all right, they heard, they heard us, they heard ProPublica. I'm glad they're taking this step. Well, I mean, let's just say this. Um, this is the thing about exposing what goes on in the dark shadows of public education. This was very good journalism. This was dogged journalism that shined a light on a problem in education and embarrassed people to the point where policy change now has to happen. That's exactly the way the world's supposed to work. 
people get mad about something. There are some people that are insiders and outsiders who have an issue and they understand it. They get it to journalists. They get it to the lost debate. They get it to us. They get it to Brightbeam, my organization. They get it to Chalkbeat. In this case, uh, ProPublica dived in and the Seattle Times partnered with them on that. And now look, change in the world right? The state the state is embarrassed. The state is going to have to take some steps now to correct the poor conditions in their schools. They're running special education, privatized special education ghettos. That's exactly what this is. They're putting real living, breathing children uh, who are the most vulnerable into circumstances that none of us as parents or, or community members should ever accept as useful. We should never be okay with it. But look, look, I mean, this goes back to the point I make on this show all the time too. This false this false hope that we have in public things, like just because you call a thing public, it doesn't mean that it has the oversight that it needs. It doesn't make it democratic just because you call it public and public funds are used for it. So let's just keep remembering that and, and when, we, when we talk about education, because I think this public thing and this privatizing thing is just really damaging the, the, the public and all of us with this idea that public and private are differentiated by the level of oversight. Yeah. Well, let's talk about oversight, Chris. So another big special education story that dropped just this past week is that on Wednesday, uh, there's this case of Perez versus Sturgis Public Schools. And uh, the Supreme Court has announced that it's going to be taking up the case of Miguel Perez, who's a deaf student who says that a Michigan school district failed for years to provide him with a qualified sign language interpreter, uh, leaving him an, quote, academic and social outcast, end quote. The justices are going to answer, I think, a, a rather complicated question, depending on you look at it, or a very simple question, depending on you look at it. The complicated question involves the overlap between two different statutes, uh, the Individuals with Disabilities Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act. And there's a whole jurisdictional conversation around whether this student who's now an adult now, it's a few years later, exhausted his sort of procedures before he sued for monetary damages. And uh, that's like the technical question they're going to answer. But I think, Chris, there's probably a more simple question here about this kid now. The simplest question to me is, you know, if you're the victim of education malpractice, should you have a right to uh, financial damages? And should you have a right to remedy? You have people graduating from school who can't read after 13 years. That's not what this case is about. But I could see if this sets a precedent that, yes, you can have remedies and damages for educational malpractice. I could see it opens the door to a lot of other things, a lot of other claimants. And I think that's the, probably the reason why you have school board associations and school districts and others lining up to make sure that the Supreme Court does not rule in favor of this student, right? Like, because it could open the door to school districts all over the place. Now, now, you and I can argue or even talk about, think about whether or not that would be a good thing. Like, right. if everybody who's suffered education malpractice school districts, we would have no school district anymore, yes. right? <laughs> like, yeah. that'd be the end of education. So. Which, there's a version of Chris Stewart there's a version of Chris Stewart that I've known over the years that would be excited by that prospect. I'm not sure if he's here with me today. Chris, tell me. And shout out to Pamela, who has my back over at the Growth Fund, sent us a lovely message where she pointed out that you have been rather hard on the system, as you were just three minutes ago. Uh, Chris, how do you want that? Do you want the system to go under due to lawsuits from parents? If it was such a thing. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen here. I'm not, Who knows? I want there to be remedies for people that suffer educational malpractice, right? And there's enough of them. I don't think the system changes until there's a reason to change, right? So if you can go on for 150 years of sorting kids into like three boxes, the boxes of the high achievers that you're going to make sure that you take care of and get through the system, the middling C students on the bubble who you're going to give AVID 
and you're going to push them over the bubble to where they're okay. And then that third group where you're just going to accept the fact that they'll never be anything. If that's the way we're going to keep doing it, the group in that never going to be anything group or the group in the, the neglected group, I think don't have any power or leverage until you win a case like this. And actually, listen, you just mentioned ADA and IDEA. These two kind of competing statutes or, or sources of legislation that both came out of exactly that. They came out of that neglected class of kids, uh, young people and their families having to fight for their rights. Now, I don't know that I want to bankrupt school districts. I don't know that I want every single claimant getting big monetary damages. I do want them to get the support they need to be whole, right? So this kid specific in this case, I mean, it's really bad. He was a deaf student. And as a deaf student, he didn't get assigned... Uh, someone to work with him that actually was conversant in sign language, right? Like, you know. I know. So this is insane. This is a very clear cut case where the kid's need is very obvious and wasn't served. You know, there's no disputing that. The district isn't disputing that. They're, they're disputing this on jurisdictional grounds, not on substance. Yeah. So this is the way Fox News put it. Lawyers for a deaf student from Sturgis, Michigan, say for more than a decade, the school district failed to provide a sign language interpreter and misled parents to think their son was on track to earn his high school diploma. However, just before graduation, the student was told that he could only receive a CER certificate of completion. He wasn't going to be able to graduate with a full high school education, and they had not been told that. They had been placing this kid with the teacher that couldn't communicate with him for years and giving him good grades. Now, this opens up so many other possibilities around educational malpractice, right? Because you are We've talked about the honesty gap. We are lying to some parents and to some students about how well they're doing. And grades are a way in which we lie to parents. You know, this comes back to everybody's hatred of standardized tests until you go through years of getting great grades and then you can't read when you graduate, right? Like we're lying. There's an honesty gap. Well, this case is kind of like the most profound case. They literally weren't even providing this kid with a teacher that could understand the kid, could communicate with the kid. And guess who's rolling up? On the side of the lower courts, which tried to get rid of this case, tried to just, you know, get it out of the way and dismiss it, the National School Board Association, right? Yeah. Like, whose side are you on? I put them up there with the National Tobacco Association. You know, if you ever see Thank You for Smoking, like, you know, like, you ever see the movie Thank You for Smoking where it's like big cholesterol, big, you know, the firearms industry, and then they have the tobacco people, they all meet in DC or whatever. I think we need to add the National School Board Association to this. But to steel man this, there are some really interesting questions of law here because of the way that special education claims are currently handled, which is right now, so many of the claims are handled where uh, this idea of a free and appropriate education is litigated and the settlements are often the district saying, all right, we are going to like come up with an educational solution. And they usually do that in lieu of a financial and monetary damages solution. And so what happens often is what happened here, which is the parents often, because it's urgent, they are like, all right, let's come to a solution now. And and sometimes they'll say maybe like, like Perez in this case, the plaintiff will say, well, later on, we'll figure out the monetary question. So Perez on the one hand is saying, well, if they reject his claim here, then it will disincentivize people to actually accede to the educational 
long solution because they'll they'll view it as like closing off the possibility of monetary damage. So it sends the wrong signal. Where the district schools are making an another really interesting claim, which is that they think this will immediately escalate these into questions of monetary damages, and that basically this will bankrupt school districts. I'd be interested to see if we have anybody in our audience who are district lawyers uh, and or district special education professionals or parents who've sued under this very law because like, and I'm probably missing all their stakeholders here, but if you're a stakeholder has has any experience on this and if and if you want to keep it anonymous, we can just read your email without your name attached or just make it clear it's anonymous. I'm just curious how this works in practice because I could be convinced either way on the merits of the legal part of this, but without a doubt, this kid was screwed over by, you know, by the district didn't get what he needed. Well, I had two ripples. Number one, all of us just as good citizens, as good people should really dig in our hearts and ask ourselves, what do we want? for kids. Like, what's the right thing to do? We could talk about the law and we can talk about policy and politics and all that stuff. Cool. At the end of all that talking, there should be a part of us that just wants to ask the basic questions of what's the right thing to do here. And in a society that cares about the most vulnerable, what's the type, what's the level of help that you want to provide to them? Like for kids that are going to have issues, what do you want to do for them, right? And how much should it cost? And how willing are you? This is like, you've helped people prepare to run for office. I wish people who help people prepare for office before they get to all the policy and the politics and the issues and the way the website's going to look and all of that. They do the the first thing first is why do you want to lead? Who do you want to help? How do you want to help them? Why do you want to help them? Like, what's the compelling reason to be a leader and to be an educational leader? And as citizens, we should ask ourselves that before we get lost in the politics of these issues, because we clearly did a kid wrong here, right? And there were many professional people that were involved in that wrongdoing. There are people that wake up every day who consider themselves to be good people. I'm sure there were good people on the school board. I'm sure there were good people in the superintendent and in the district offices and in the classroom. There was a teacher every day who knew that she was serving or he was serving a kid that wasn't getting the appropriate services or whatnot. I just want all those good people in the chain to start digging into themselves a little bit on something more than just the materialist questions, but more kind of like the values-based stuff. Mm -hmm. The second thing I'll say about this is I live in a very blue state now with a complete Democrat kind of takeover of everything from top to bottom. And my governor is a former high school teacher. And my uh, my lieutenant governor is a former school board colleague of mine. And they couldn't be more tied into the DFL, which in my state is the De- <laughs> Democratic Farmer Labor Party. They couldn't be more of that. And we have a budget surplus of a crazy amount of money, like $11 billion or something like that. And this is their moment to fully fund education, fully fund. Like they can have everything they want with no guardrails. There's no there's no Republicans to get in their way, nobody to stop them or whatnot on the way to um, fully funding education. One of the bedeviling things is that special education, the cross subsidy of special, edu- special education in our school districts is so big. And by cross subsidy, if you're listening to this, I mean... The amount of money that school districts have to take out of their regular general fund to cover the legally mandated services that they have to do for special education students that aren't being funded by the feds or the state, that's called a cross-subsidy because you're taking money out of your general fund to fund things that the government is making you do that they're not paying you for. That is so big in our state that even our big surplus with all of the right kind of politicians and progressives in place or whatnot cannot handle. They can't make that right. They can't make that whole. 
even though in other years, this is why I think they love to have competition. They love to have an oppositional party in their way so that they can say, we can't do it because of the oppositional party. But it's just that big of a problem. It's so big that even with a big, super big surplus and all of the politicians agreeing that they would correct it, they can't do it. Well, okay. What's making you think this week, Chris? Ooh. Now, see, our think one for this week could have fit into being mad for me, too. And I think you guys trolled me on this I one a little bit. I uh, figured. I just want to see you guys troll me a little bit. Okay. What else is making you mad? What else is making you mad? Maybe the third one makes you think. I don't, I, I'm not sure. But definitely the, this one, what's making you mad? It definitely made me think. Okay. I just want to say for the record, the first one made me think. The first one didn't really make me mad. So we're kind of out of order this week. Yeah. The okay. first one, actually, I wasn't so mad about that. I mean, okay. I'm mad about the problem. The remedy that's coming for the problem to me kind of makes me think like you and I just did. What's what's the issue under this? The second issue here is there's an article that was written called The Coming Discipline Wars in the National Review just came out, uh, I think, a, a couple of days ago. And it's by Daniel Buck, who's a private school teacher who's known online as very much a, a Twitter combatant for the right wing, who's always looking for the wedge issue for the right wing, basically. And in this piece, uh, he says that taking up the issue of school discipline would be a winning issue for conservatives because progressive approaches to the problem have led to widespread chaos. Basically, he says that when you get underneath the hood of schools, you find out that there's been a decaying kind of sense of decorum in schools. Kids are out of hand. The teachers hate it. The teachers are begging for help. And it's all because we have been on this quest for equity, for reductions in suspensions, expulsions, and we've loosened behavioral expectations to the point where schools have just basically come unhinged and they are like something out of a 1970s uh, gang movie. The remedy that he has for this is to apply the broken windows theory. That's his remedy. His remedy is to go back in time and think about the social science research around sweating the small stuff as a way to do it. He says, theories regarding causes of the increase are legion, social media, months of online schooling, rights in the streets, larger social trends of family and institutional breakdown, and plenty more. Assigning portions of the blame would hardly be constructive, but it's crucial to focus on one clear driver of the problem, the trend away from punitive discipline in schools, because it is of recent vintage and within school officials' control. His last part that he puts here, alternatives to standard punitive discipline while glittering ideals in the abstract are a resounding failure in practice. It's a story that parallels the rise and fall of broken windows policy in society more generally, an analog through which we can understand the causes and consequences of the abolition of school discipline. Because we, if you don't remember, we abolished school discipline. There are no kids that are getting disciplined anymore. There's no, there's no, no, no one's getting expelled, no expulsions, no one's getting, um, uh, no one has SROs in their schools that are putting them under, making them vulnerable to attachment to the criminal justice system unduly and early. All that's been thrown out, right? Kids are smoking crack and meth in the hallways and beating up teachers and raiding, robbing each other. Make a request of education writers out there, especially those who are opinion writers. When you cite studies, I want you to do some work to explain to me what other studies exist out there and what those studies actually say. I think a good model for this is a guy named Peter Atia, who is a doctor, a longevity doctor, very famous guy. He's always on Rogan and all these other places. He's like the doctor to like very rich people who want to live forever. And what Peter Atia does when he's going over medical sciences, he has his podcast and he'll talk about, all right, will eating carbs make you fat mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. whatever, right? And then he'll 
go through the studies and he'll be like, all right, here are the five studies that are the seminal studies on this. And he'll be like, well, this one didn't control for this and this one didn't control for that. And I have some questions about this population or this one seems like it's saying something really important, but I'd want to see it done three more times. And what I find frustrating when I read these articles and Pondicio did this when we, when we were talking about Pondicio, Rob Pondicio, we had a whole segment on him a couple episodes ago, is they often just make sweeping claims and then they make you do the work reading these articles and have to click the links. And often the links are preposterously thin or they're a cherry pick study that makes the exact argument that they want. But then you Google it some more and then you find, oh, well, were there other states that have different examples here? So I'll give you one example of what I found particularly frustrating about this piece is that he had a sentence. There's like a, he, he linked to another one of his pieces from a couple of weeks before that, which also had to do with student discipline. And this is a sentence in the piece. Quote, KIPP employees are complaining about student behavior in an institution in which student misbehavior had previously been unthinkable, end quote. And previously unthinkable is linked and you quote and you link to that article. It doesn't in any way show that student misbehavior was unthinkable in KIPP. You've been to KIPP schools. I've been to KIPP schools. Not only is student misbehavior thinkable, it is prevalent misbehavior. It's prevalent every day in a KIPP school like any other school. There are suspensions in KIPP schools. There always have been. There are fights in KIPP schools, many of them. There are kids who get demerits and merits and all sorts of stupid misbehavior has been a mainstay in KIPP schools as they are in every other school. The fact that that made it past an editor to me is preposterous. And this was my whole like problem with this whole article. I'm generally directionally with him on certain things. I think that there's a laughably out of touch part of the progressive wing that just wants to like, you know, wave their magic wand and say restorative justice and yada, 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 which are terms that can be implemented really well or terms that could be implemented really poorly. And he has this opportunity to make the case to people like me to be like, all right, like I could make common cause with a conservative ally and calling out some of the, the sort of postmodern gobbledygook that's too prevalent in certain schools. But he doesn't. Like he he's kind of dishonest in the way he makes his argument. And I don't trust that he's linking to the whole story when he's making his argument. And so although I'm directionally very sympathetic to some of the things he's saying, I find his journalism very shoddy. Well, I mean, I think it's interesting, number one, that he's a teacher. And teachers are supposed to have a little bit of discipline about how they package issues because they want people to learn. They're not trying to persuade you on, they're not trying to indoctrinate you, they're trying to teach you. So it's interesting that a person from the right wing who's a teacher actually is packaging his stuff in a way specifically to indoctrinate you, not to make you think, not to be honest about the breadth and depth of the issue and to bring in alternative voices. It's clearly just a propaganda piece. And this is the problem with, you just said something around the behavior of students and there's some laughable kind of expectations in some of the progressive universe of people that talk about this issue, whatever. I think when it comes to education punditry, there's no accountability, right? Yeah. So it comes down to how honest are you? Now, I am a person who can be swayed by liberal, conservative, centrist arguments. Can I don't care where you come from. There are people that I disagree hotly that do great research and they send it to me and I can weigh it. I'm always honest with my reader about the fact that this is where I'm coming down on things, not that I have a preconceived notion. And I defy anyone in my like 10, 15 years to say that I'm a dogmatist of anything because I will drop a thing like a hot potato the moment that the, the research in my mind doesn't line up with it. I don't care. 
Like there's like, I, I'm from the Bruce Lee school. Don't have any fixed positions, you know, don't have any, no fixed positions, right? So in a case like this, I think, you know, there is a part of the right wing punditry that is, is really just about a campaign. They want a certain thing to happen. His, his argument in this piece is that this could be a winning political issue, not because it would do anything better for kids. Like there's no solution in here for improving discipline to me, except for alluding to broken windows theory. Mm -hmm. You and I both have been in enough schools to know that classroom management, school behavior management, school-wide behavior management systems are their own animal. It, do it doesn't matter if you're political or not. It just It's not the easiest thing yeah. in the world. If you're going to start a, a charter school tomorrow or a new school or any school and this was on your plate and you were the one who was responsible for culture and for discipline and all the systems or whatnot, great, good luck. You have a big job ahead of you. And I don't care what side of the aisle you come from in politics. It's just a hard thing. I was a big fan of PBIS for years. I have educator friends who laugh at me for having, I was like, listen, Obama pushed it and it was evidence tested. And when it came to our school board, it had evidence behind it that it was one way of handling these issues or whatnot. It wasn't political, but you could make it political. If you wanted to, you could make it political. And I think that's what this article does, along with what you're saying, is I just wish it had more honesty in its sources. Like if you're going to, like the guy linked to yeah. himself multiple times to other pieces, other pieces he wrote, right? He does. Yeah, it's so fascinating. Now, look, I'm sure I've done it at times, but he does it a lot. Yeah. Now, there are a couple of interesting data points in here that line up with certain things that I've found in some of my qualitative research that I'm doing right now. So I've been doing this interview series where I've been interviewing people who run schools and or school networks and just asking them questions about the direction they think this so-called education reform movement we're in is taking, which, you know, we'll come back to in this next segment. And almost everybody is saying that they feel like they've been pushed to do things that make their schools less safe, that they don't believe in and that the parents don't want. They don't want what activists, particularly democratic and progressive activists are asking for and people on Twitter. And so that is definitely a trend. And that's something that this guy is trying to point out. He cites data collected by the Institute of Educational Sciences, which found that in a survey of 850 school leaders, one in three reported an increase in student violence and fights and over half reported an increase in classroom disruptions. I had to do some work to figure out what exactly he was linking to here, because of course he links to data. And then I click this link and it's the school pulse panel. And you could click the link yourself. It's basically a an hour and a half of work to try to figure out which of the panels he's talking about because he just links to the website. And so I had to go through and I think the data he, first of all, this is a very reputable source. It's government source. So this is a real survey. And there, there are all these questions about, do you think during the COVID pandemic period of time, your school is more or less safe? I think I found the data he's talking about, which does show that dramatically more in this case, a third of school leaders are saying the schools are getting less safe in a number of different ways, while single digits are saying they're becoming more safe. So it is, there are people saying what I'm picking up in my surveys of people too. And then he links to, throughout this article, a bunch of state-by-state -state studies, you know, Philadelphia suspensions, restorative justice in a, in a bunch of different places. There's this interesting RAND Corporation study that also there was in conjunction with the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, which is within the HHS. There were these studies that kind of showed that restorative justice could have some negative effects on student achievement and safety. But there are all these studies. But the problem with him is like, I'm clicking to do these things. I'm like, yeah, this study is interesting. This study does show 
certain things that I'm inclined to believe. But if we're going to provide a service to our audience, I need to know what you read that maybe, you know, suggests something otherwise, or I need to know how you read a study in a place like Maine versus somewhere else, or to dig in and be like, well, that restorative justice study was the researchers themselves implementing restorative justice not the schools deciding to implement it. So maybe that's an interesting wrinkle to the story or the fact that during the period of restorative justice, I had to, and you know, this is where you go down this rabbit hole. The researchers admit in the restorative justice study that during the period of time that they were studying restorative justice in the control group, which didn't have it because of the national conversation around restorative justice, that school on its own decided to do certain aspects of restorative justice and it muddied the data. None of this comes across in this article. And to be clear, I'm very critical of the way restorative justice is talked about on the left, but there's nothing in this piece that would help somebody like me either confirm or challenge my assumptions or persuade anybody else of that position. And so that's my problem with this piece. Yeah. I mean, I just don't think we're going to win with it being about the left and the right all the time. I don't think restorative justice is on the left. I just think good people who want to understand how you manage behavior in schools better figure out what the science says. And there are things like I, I've made fun of people that I think are kind of overwoke and leftist. It's been like a source of entertainment for me for 10, 15 years. It's not serious. It doesn't get down to the seriousness of what it takes to run a school and to operate what the research says. It's actually just fun. It's entertainment just to, to own the libs on everything and see how, how wacky they are and how out of hand. That's cool. But then let me know when you get to the part about being serious about what it takes really to manage behavior in schools where you can't gerrymander the population. See, the guy who wrote this article is a private school teacher that kicks people out of their school for doing things that he doesn't like. That's great. That's a that's one strategy. That's absolutely one strategy for making sure that you don't have to manage discipline. The ability to just get rid of students and offload them to someone else. But see, the thing that I know and people on the left, all those wacky people on the left who are embedded in the traditional systems know is that they're going to get all those 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 kids. And having been a, a former school board member, I can tell you that there were whole schools in our district whose population would go down just before testing time and we would get an onslaught of kids right before testing time every year. Uh, we would swell with kids and we had this thing called contract alternative schools right? Where we dumped a bunch of kids into those. We paid people on a contract to just here, take this group of kids that we don't want to serve, that we want to hide and whatnot. So the kids have to go somewhere. If you have a school, if you were doing a turnaround right now and you went into a school, my, my, my friend and colleague, Sharif Elmecki, who's done turnarounds, would tell you that he could get a handle on all these things. He could go into a school probably and, and change them around. He's done it. He's got the street cred to say, to make that claim that he can do it. Wouldn't be easy. And he would have to have a path, you know, to making it happen. He'd have to have control of everything, picking his team, picking his staff, redoing the school. It'd have to be a real turnaround to make it happen. That's where I think the seriousness of this work is. It's not between the left and the right shooting bows at each other, whether or not we should have kids sit in a talking circle and pass around like a, a talking totem stick or something like that versus should we put every kid in jail, right? Like that's the cartoon of this conversation that I'm, I don't find serious and it's not entertaining for me anymore Mm -hmm. because the bottom line is one group is trying to say that Obama and his guidance on disparities, like getting at disparities was the problem. And that's because they don't like going after disparities, period. They, They like disparities in the system. They like the idea that that the system is unequal in their favor. So they have been fighting every form of civil rights kind of focus 
for decades. That's, there's nothing new about this. If you keep going down the rabbit hole where this author gets a lot of his talking points from, it'll take you to an article. You should get to an article called No Thug Left Behind, written by Kathy Kirsten, Catherine Kirsten, a person that I, I know and was once friendly with. And it's the genesis of this argument that Obama started all of this and that it's a good issue for Republicans. And if you go look at No Thug Left Behind, that article, just in the, the way I just titled, told you what the title is and how it talks about the kids or whatnot, should tell you a lot about the frame, the framing of the issue and where it's coming from. And it's not coming from a practitioner's view of how you run a school. It's coming from a political view of how you punish people and punish kids and how you should treat kids. And, you know, we just need a good old fashioned, you know, ass whooping, you know, that type of stuff. But don't you think that the politics goes both ways, though, right? Like I, I see all these people on Twitter and sometimes at conferences like, you know, they're, they're being welcomed in certain previously education reform oriented organizations where there's this like trafficking in sociology like lingo that isn't attached to school practice and often is like scratching an itch of the person often lecturing the school leaders out there. Maybe this is what he's getting at with the disparities conversation is when I talk to school leaders, they're often feeling like, all right, I'm being told that I'm racist. And often these are black and brown school leaders, and they're being told they're racist by white progressives and handpicked allies that white progressives have. And they're, they're saying, okay, you're racist because your school is strict. Meanwhile, their parents are asking for this school. The leaders have been pretty clear about what it is they're offering. And, you know, I was having a conversation with John Little, you know, former school member down in Nashville about this, where he's like, the difference between the parents and the activists couldn't be more stark right now. And so I feel like that's political too. It's I, I don't feel like these right-wing figures are the only political people out there. I think that these blue check marks who are wagging their finger at school leaders are also being really political. They're performing for their friends. They're not trying to solve problems all the time. I think that the majority of the people in the school systems that we're talking about that have the majority of black and brown students are majority centrist or left of center. And they're not in the streets necessarily as activists. And that is who the right wing is attacking. They're not just, they're using the Antifa cartoon as a way to rally on their point, but actually they're literally attacking the people working in the schools every day who have a real job with real students. They're not like Daniel Buck, the author here, teaching in a private school somewhere, opining about what public schools should do and how our kids in public schools, they're not, they're going to work every day in a district job that oftentimes is thankless, where many of them don't have a political kind of like ideology because they got a job to do. And they are grasping at social right. science research and at academic research. It's probably one of the main reasons you have so many of them going back for their master's and their PhDs is because they are continuing along the line of researching these things in a serious way. I don't agree with all of them. I don't agree with a lot of what what's in their syllabus and their reading list. I think some of them go to PhD programs to become more confused. I have a critique of them. Right. I literally do. But those are the ones that I know. The ones that I know doing that work yeah. have a very different view than all of these Daniel Bucks of the world and these other people that are opining mm -hmm. from, listen, if Daniel Buck knows so much and wants to make a big difference in the world, get out of the private school and go teach in a public district where all of your insight and wisdom is needed, mm -hmm. right? If you've got all this insight and wisdom about what should be done to make sure that schools are under control, go, go. Like a lot of my friends are people who actually do the work, right? Yeah. And they're actually confronting a lot of complexities and whatnot. And many of them are not very political people. Like they vote a certain way, but you could make too much of that. 
the work that they do every day isn't really political. It's actually pedagogical. Yeah. It's actually, you know, just running a school, damn it. And, you know, and you're trying to balance being a good person and not participating in the heterosexual patriarchy, blah, 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 blah. You're, you're trying to do that, too, at the same time that you're trying to keep kids safe and have some rules and expectations in your schools. Yeah. I have so many thoughts on this, but I have a feeling we'll we'll be able to come back to a lot of this. And I think some of it colors our next think piece, which is this article by uh, Chester Finn and Frederick Hess. Yeah, winter 2023 national affairs, the article is called The End of School Reform. So this piece is a historic piece. It's a piece about the history of the bipartisan education coalition. And it goes back all the way back to a nation at risk. And it says, you know, in 1983 report, Nation at Risk, it launched an education movement that lasted for more than 40 years. But it came unglued in the face of polarization and populist backlash. And it, it's very detailed. So it goes through a lot of different things about the, the nation at risk era and what held the bipartisan coalition together. And what it says that held the coalition together, which is something I agree with, and I've written something very similar to this, was that there were like core issues like school transparency, the expansion of charter schools, student achievement, parental choice, a focus on educational outcomes. Those were all things that held the sensible middle together in public education, like in the coalition. And at some point, the adults left. That's my saying. That's not Rick Hess's saying. But in, in my saying, those centrist people, the Margaret Spellings of the world, the Jeb Bushes of the world in the Republican side, and you know the liberal lions of like the Kennedys and the Bill Clintons and the Obamas in the Democratic Party, like they formed a middle uh, and they had some basic beliefs. They believed that data mattered, accountability mattered, making sure that there were mechanisms for accountability mattered, teacher evaluation, the expansion of choice for parents specifically in the public school choice realm, which is charters versus they didn't all they I don't think they ever came to agreement on private school choice. That's what held them together. And what Rick is saying and arguing is the thing that tore them apart was the left going way too social justice and cultural issues, the cultural war, uh, wars that he says didn't just start. He says they were there all along. You know, they've been there for a long time. And this is for, if you're listening and you're not like part of the end reform fraternity, this is very much like a inside baseball thing. It's inside baseball, but it's so important. We're talking about one of the, the largest bipartisan consensuses and any policy issue, and it spanned decades. Yeah. And that's why I find it really interesting. And it's also the the context of which I, I entered this work. He writes about, basically, I entered this work at the apex of all of this, which was the race to the top, Obama, first term, where he's, you know, there's basically like a good example is like Clinton passed legislation to create certain standards-based education and, you know, require states to track certain skills. Then, you know, George W. Bush and Ted Kennedy partner on No Child Left Behind, which adds critical hefts to that, including like the ability to assess data by subgroups requiring schools to not only report their data about how students are learning, but by groups like by race and by special education status and economic status and all that. And then Obama adds race to the top, which goes even further. And that's like an amazing bipartisan consensus that 
I think was dominated a lot of the time that you and I were directly in the work. So I think that's huge. Like it's inside baseball, like that we call it education reform and that whether it's a movement or not, but I don't think it's, it shouldn't be inside baseball from a perspective of people who care about education. Yeah. I mean, I, I get it. I just think for the general public who are, you know, really kind of enamored with a lot of other policy kind of issues, I don't think that they would have known like how NCLB was constructed and came about. I, many of them wouldn't know very much at all about race to the top and like how it carried on things. Right. I don't think anybody knows like the, you know, the, the war on poverty era education policies that started all of this, right? Like if you yeah. ask a lot of people who say they hate NCLB, they probably don't even have an idea that this came out of the war, war on poverty. Right. But the sensible middle, I do think that there's something to be said for the adults leaving the room, what happens? Because now all of a sudden you have no standards. You have no real standards. I should say, I don't want to be hyperbolic for this one point because this is, this is really important. We have a decaying sense of how important it is to have standards, to have ways of measuring whether or not we are making progress against those standards. There was such a fight against Common Core. There was such, there's such a fight against testing, standardized testing specifically, definitely not the type of testing that teachers do every day, but just the standardized kind, the kind that's third party and gives us real data. I think it's on all sides. No one wants to be accountable necessarily. Republican school districts, mm -hmm. Republican states have school districts too. They have superintendents too. They don't necessarily like being put on the hook for things. No one really does. Mm -hmm. So I could see why there was bipartisan disillusion with that reform at some point, because it was starting to ask so much of people to stand and deliver and to prove it. So they formed a different coalition, the anti-testing coalition now. Mm -hmm. Now you've got Republicans and Democrats who both are against standardized testing, both against standards. They secretly both oppose integration, by the way. The left doesn't admit they oppose integration, but try asking a family in the Upper West Side or Upper East Side to integrate their school or somebody in East Nashville, whether they want to integrate their school or even to create resource equality. They are quietly against integration, whereas I think like a lot of the members of the right are just explicitly against it. <laughs> and But they both, in the end, it's the same result. I feel like you have a special erection for the left. <laughs> well, I feel like you well, keep coming back to this. Let me just say, this. like, I don't think you mean erection. I think you mean the opposite of erection. But the, uh, no, I come back to it because I think I've spent my lifetime fighting the right. Like, I started Arena. We fight right yeah, on people. Yeah. Like, to me, it's like very obvious because when you and I talk, the reason why I talk about it a lot is because when you and I talk, we take for granted that the right is at times, often, operating out of bad faith. And so you and I do very little work to interrogate those assumptions often, right? So, so, but I think on the left, like you and I are just going to take that for granted. And it's like hard to steel man that sometimes just because we generally will agree on a lot of that. Now, I think a lot of our audience is probably center centrist or center left. It takes more work to convince some of those people that there actually are problems going on in the left. Yeah. And you and I aren't always going to see eye to eye on that. That's why I spend more time on that stuff. Well, I just, you know, I want people to know, I mean, listening to this, you know, if you're new to me, you would not know that I'm not a leftist and I'm not on the left. I have such a strong critique for the left that I almost take that as a forgiven. I mean, as a given. Yeah. So maybe we're coming at it from the opposite. Yeah. Maybe you and I are coming at it from the opposite perspective, but there are certain things in this article. So first of all, I really like this article, even though I don't agree with all of it. I think it was a really helpful history. And I think for people who you're going to read it, there are going to be parts of it you don't agree with for sure. And we could talk about those, but what I, what he, what they do, the two of them, Chester Finn and Frederick Hess here, they do is provide a pretty exhaustive history to people who aren't 
totally familiar with the contours mm-hmm. of this mm-hmm. and they offer their opinions to, as to what happened at various points here. And I think there are a couple things that they say that I'm ranking in terms of the definite agree category for me. Mm-hmm. Let's hear it. One of them is that this, so the school reform, they said that the school reform movement by and large didn't do enough to speak to rural and suburban families or incorporate them into the narrative. That seems right to me. Uh, I understand why they didn't, because the questions around urban schools and charters and all that like dominated. And I think we didn't get our urban, our rural and suburban politics, right? And you start to think about what happened in Common Core, for example, like it was the suburban backlash that Arnie wasn't ready for. And then oftentimes stoked that really rose up against them. So I think I'm like into that. Like, I, I think it's complicated how to speak to rural and suburban schools while also talking about urban schools. Two is he, he they, they do not to the lack of representation. I was surprised because I was expecting, you know, I don't know these two, but I was expecting them to, in the way that you had described earlier, the way they were talking about social justice warrior stuff happening, like I thought they would kind of dismiss the representation argument in similar ways, but they do talk about how how basically we were at the apex of reform. It was highly unrepresentative. And then there was this other piece, which I do think is also interesting, which is the reliance on elite foundations who often bullied and bribed their way to policy change. And I think that was the perception and it was an effectively painted as the perception. I think certain funders and institutions were more arrogant than others, but I do think like that being a perception, whether like, I think the reality is a little bit more complicated. That being the perception was very inconvenient. I would say to us in Tennessee, like the view on the ground, like names like Gates and Brood and Walton and all that were like literally what school board races were fought over. So the other side definitely successfully painted that picture and convinced voters and other stakeholders within the system that there are these puppeteers behind the scenes. So those are three things that stuck to me as like, Hey, but then their big conclusion, which is that this coalition no longer exists, is definitely true. Like we could argue about why the coalition doesn't exist, but it certainly doesn't exist from what I could see. I do think we should interrogate this term social justice because I think that they do themselves a disservice in the way that they deploy it. Because I don't know them personally, but I know a lot of my, like some of my most well-intentioned conservative friends out there. When they deploy that term, these are people who I, in the work, know for sure they cared about social justice, lowercase j, social justice. You know what I'm saying? Like they care, they care about kids. Like these are people I promise care about kids. These are people who worked with me on this stuff. I know what's in their hearts. Uh, they're people I stood side by side. We made difficult decisions together. We put in the work and they love our kids. And they would they they did so much for us. And they care about outcomes for those kids. And they buy into racial inequality being a major problem in this country and schools being the solution to that. I think when they use this term, social justice, capital S, capital J, I don't know if they capitalize it, but they use it as a term of art. I think they use it to mean certain activism and things like that. But the, when they say it like this, it makes it hard for me to really like, if I'm saying it out loud, to be like, the problem was we were too concerned with social justice. To the layperson listening to that, they're like, well, I care about social justice. They don't know that social justice is some kind of like term of art to mean a certain activist wing. And I, I would love people to do more work here because I think it's like, it makes it really hard to engage. Cause then if I'm trying to bring like a big part of my job, I view right now is to try to answer the question they end this piece on, which is what does the next coalition look like? And I would want 
said coalition to include Chris Stewart and Rick Hess. I don't know Rick Hess, but let's just say, right? Or Chester Finn, who I read his book when I was first starting out as a principal. I think it was about core knowledge, maybe, or uh, like how do you like write strong standards or something. It was very like practical, useful education practice stuff. And I would want our coalition to include people like this, but we've got to kind of put down the buzzwords a little bit, because I think sometimes it can get us into trouble. I think they're generally pretty nuanced in this piece, even if I don't agree with everything, but I do, that term set me off a little bit because it makes it hard sometimes to, to create the olive branches that we need. So I think we, we definitely will have to pick up on this another time. I do think there, like, there are a lot of people on the, on the right who are good faith really do want to improve the system. And I also think there are certain people in the so-called activist left who are doing things that more out of a sense of vanity than a sense of outcomes. I don't think that either side is a monolith. I think that they're, they're as complicated as society is writ large. And I think people do these things for different motivations. But I think that we'll save that for another time. I do think that there's a really interesting last paragraph of this piece where they ask, did the movement do any good? And I'll just read it as a sound off and something that we can come back to another time. So they asked, quote, did the movement do any good while it lasted? It certainly yielded unprecedented transparency regarding student achievement and produced a massive expansive charter schooling and parental choice. And it pushed educational outcomes to the center of the national conversation about opportunity and economic growth. Yet there's scant evidence that it improved student outcomes, especially in the upper grades. Meanwhile, by enlisting Uncle Sam as the nation's school superintendent, Reformers helped entangle education fights with broader clashes over politics and culture. Along the way, they narrowed school curricula, dismissed the concerns of middle-class parents, and defined success using a race-centric notion of achievement gaps. I, as I read that, feel like you were getting nods in the beginning, and then you're like, now they kind of lost you, I think, in the second half of that paragraph. But I do think it's an interesting, provocative series of takes. I agree with some of the things they say there and not others. But kudos to them for a, a really thought-provoking piece. Chris, anything else as we sign off here? I will just say, at the end of the day, I am actually rooting for the people that are running schools that are actually doing things for kids every day because that's my proof in the pudding. Show me where something that you believe in is working, right? So I love all these think pieces. Let's keep talking about them. We should at some point talk about where schools are not working and where they are working and give people kind of real examples. As always, we love that there are so many of you that will chime in through our email and through our phone on voicemail. So if you want to be heard on this show or others and give us show ideas, you should leave us a voicemail. The phone number is 321-213-9171. If you want to email us instead, the email address is com. We will look at your comments, try and incorporate your ideas into our show, and definitely uh, listen I love it when you give either one of us a hard time because it just helps us keep score back and forth, right? <laughs> like, like as dudes will do, that's like our, our thing to do. So we appreciate you all. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Citizen Stewart Show. We'll be back to you next week. 